Welcome everyone out here tonight. Uh, my name is Sammy Tayyab, the Director of Middle East Books and More, and um, this is the start of our uh, book talk series of the season, our first one of the season. Um, uh, tonight I have the pleasure of introducing Grant Smith in his new book, uh, The Israel Lobby Enters State Government, uh, Rise of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. Um, so, we're in for a, a great talk tonight about um, various issues uh, related to the Israel lobby and state government. Um, a little bit about Grant. Um, he is the director of the Washington DC based Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. Uh, he is the author of the 2016 book Big Israel, How Israel's Lobby Moves America and uh, Divert. Uh, Numek Zalman Shapiro and the Diversion of U.S. Weapons Grade Uranium into the Israeli Nuclear Weapons Program. Uh, Smith has also written two histories of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, uh, America's Defense Line, uh, the Justice Department's battle to register the Israel lobby as agents of a foreign government, and foreign agents, APAC from the 1963 Fulbright hearings to the 2005 espionage scandal. Uh, Smith's reports uh, about the Israel lobby and Freedom of Information Act lawsuits to reveal official U.S. policy on Israel's nuclear program appear frequently in the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and Antiwar.com news website. Um, he also works with us to uh, for on our <coughs> annual conference, um, which is coming up uh, the end of May this year, um, which I encourage everyone to check out, um, especially in our uh, upcoming issues uh, and current issue of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. Um, so, um, as a, and before we begin, I want to just, uh, as a, um, as a, uh, I'm blanking on the word, uh, <laughs> please uh, turn your uh, cell phones to silent, and, uh, and at the end, during the Q&A, uh, uh, please keep your questions to a question and opposed to a statement. Uh, thank you, and uh, please welcome me in joining, and wel please join me in welcoming Grant. <laughs> thanks, thank you. Um, so thanks to Middle East Books and More for having me as their first, uh, and to the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, which has actually published excerpts of this book that have gotten quite a bit of what I think is warranted attention. Uh, this is a topic um, about what I'm going to frankly be characterizing as a dangerous new kind of entity that is devoted entirely in, to, in the cause of improving Israel's strategic positioning at great cost to the U.S. And it's operating mostly in stealth mode. It's rather difficult to get any information about it. And that was the challenge that made it look um, like an interesting topic for writing an entire book about. Um, but my first work investigating out-of-control lobbies started in the late 1980s when I was out of college and did a project with the Minnesota Citizens League on their public sector lobbying committee uh, in a group that was looking specifically at the use of public funds by state agencies that were using those funds to lobby for more funding. And this was a novel topic. 
these projects were always presented as being in the public interest. The committee found that frequently they weren't, and this is a topic they have in common with the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, but this was 30 years ago. Um, Non-disclosure was rampant and it was causing serious corruption problems in the Minnesota state government. The title of the report, and I wish I had this for my own uh, work, was because that's where the money is, talking about why these public sector entities were lobbying state government. Um, so the Minnesota Citizens League served as a good model of a nonpartisan, nonprofit public interest research group that I leaned on heavily when I formed IRMEP in 2002. As Sammy said, our main uh, tool is the Freedom of Information Act, both at the federal and state level, and they're different. Every state has its own version of sunshine laws. We're particularly focused on the Israel lobby's influence on U.S. Middle East policy because our focus as an organization is researching policy formulation. Who's making the policy? What are the pressures exerted to make those policies? And it's um, served to uh, write a number of books and reports, and I'll just go through some of them quickly. The first one was Neocon Middle East Policy, looking at the 1996 Clean Break Plan, written for Benjamin Netanyahu, but subsequently implemented by George W. Bush. Uh, this plan, as many know, was to uh, target Iraq, uh, target Syria, and other Israeli targets, and it's mostly been implemented by the United States at this point. Foreign Agents, as Sammy mentioned, uh, is the first uh, in-depth look at the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee from the year after it was ordered by the Department of Justice when it was part of an umbrella organization to register as an Israeli foreign agent through the espionage scandal that broke out in 2005. Uh, America's Defense Line is also about that same topic, except it's entirely about a trove of documents that we had released in 2008 with the Justice Department's uh, battle to get the American Zionist Council and its unincorporated lobbying division, APAC, to comply with the Foreign Agents Registration Act because of all the money they had received from Israel, all the public relations they were doing in coordination with Israel. It was a failed attempt, um, and the trove of documents now appears in the Israel Lobby Archive alongside thousands of other documents that we obtain under FOIA and put online so they can be indexed, visited, cited in other works of research and have an impact. Uh, we also do conferences, uh, the big one with the Washington Reports coming up on May 29, public opinion polls, in many instances debunking Gallup polls, challenging Gallup polls, Gallup polls are the worst in my view, many completely unsubstantiated assertions, particularly about U.S. Middle East policy. Um, and really having a way to exert accountability through new online representative polling techniques. So um, I'm going to skip over a couple here. 
Um, divert, uh, second to last, is about the diversion of U.S. government weapons-grade uh, weapons uranium from a plant in Pennsylvania. And finally, Big Israel is a quantitative look at the $6.2 billion nonprofit ecosystem of organizations that have as one of their top three objectives, uh, again, advancing Israel's strategic position by influencing the United States. Uh, it's one of the first uh, in-depth looks. Uh, but what really ties all of these books together really is exposing corruption of U.S. Middle East policy making by lobbyists for a foreign country. And so I want to start out the story of the Israel lobby enters state government with a case study which um, is I think interesting because it really touches on self-dealing and in this particular case outright embezzlements of state funding by the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. And so Appalachian Biofuels LLC was launched in 2014. It proposed uh, building a biofuels refinery using enzyme technology from Transbiodiesel, an Israeli company and using the old Bush Furniture Factory, a massive facility in the economically depressed St. Paul, Virginia, uh, to create a new industry and new jobs in a desperately needed uh, uh, area of the state. In fact, they promised 40 new jobs, full-time jobs for Russell County. They obtained loans, grants, uh, and many upgrades to the facility. Terry McAuliffe was there to launch the facility in a big celebration. Uh, Chuck Lesson, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board Vice Chairman, had seen other economic development programs in the state obtaining hundreds of thousands of dollars in giant pools of development funds and had decided, this is for me. And so although he was part, he was a member of the board uh, that brings in Israeli companies and connects them with Virginia State funding, he wanted a piece of that for himself and created an LLC called Appalachian Biofuels. Uh, the state subsidies sought by Appalachian Biofuels were generous, $250,000 from the Tobacco Commission. Now the Tobacco Commission is a state entity that received tobacco liability funds from all those tobacco lawsuits. Um, those funds were supposed to be used for smoking cessation programs and teaching about the harms of smoking. But like many other states, Virginia uh, threw it all into a big pool and started using it for some very worthy and other quite dubious economic development programs and has since paid out about a billion dollars since they started the fund. Uh, but anyway, $800,000 uh, came from the Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Authority for this biodiesel uh, plant. Uh, that's, as it looks, a development authority that's tried to transition away from coal. $300,000 for rail access, $350,000 or $55,000 for extra special projects to make this vision a reality. So who was going to run Trans Biodiesel? 
The Virginia Israel Advisory Board Vice Chairman is known locally in South Richmond as the Bingo Maven. He runs a giant bingo hall called Pops. He's been involved in the bingo industry since the 1980s. Uh, it's run as a charitable endeavor because you have to have a charity involved in bingo in order to operate legally. And so his charity is called the Jerusalem Connection, a 501c3 charity devoted to the mission of helping to combat the worldwide problem of assimilation, that is, marriage between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, it gives grants to Birthright Israel and has run $40 million uh, through its coffers since it launched in South Richmond. So Chuck Lesson didn't have any energy industry experience, uh, no particular um, claims on being able to do this. But he did want to branch out from his core business and in this era of $100 per barrel fuel prices or petroleum prices, he thought this was going to be a sure thing. And he was very prepared to bring in a lot of state money using his authority as a board member to make it happen. Uh, this is the December 3rd, 2014 ribbon cutting ceremony. There's Terry, Governor McAuliffe, and Charles Lesson right over there. So what happened? And this is a part of on-the-ground research that I really enjoyed immensely. Go to Virginia, drive around to the very tip of the southwestern corner and see what's happening. Oh, and they cut a cake. Uh, there's nothing going on at Appalachian Biofuels. There was a lot of information online about the launch. Obviously, the pictures are readily available, but there was nothing about what happened to this giant Virginia investment. And what happened is nothing. The former furniture facility is still there. There's nobody using the loading docks. If I could have photoshopped in some videos of tumbleweed going across <laughs> the lot, I would have, but I don't know if tumbleweed is native to that part of Virginia. At any rate, what I found was that there's nothing going on there. Um, it took FOIA research and all of the implicit lawsuits that could have happened because the first thing that most organizations that receive a FOIA request uh, from me do is look at the website and all they see are all these horrible federal lawsuits we filed over the years. So they don't want that. And what we found was that this project had run into severe problems and never went forward. We also found out that $210,000 of development funds were never paid back as they were legally required to be, and that it appeared that the Jerusalem connection had paid out $340,000 to cover some of the losses of money that had disappeared during the course of the Appalachian biofuel business startup. And so the smoking gun that this had simply been embezzled was a set of uh, documents that we received from the Tobacco Commission, some of them very heavily redacted. Essentially, two government officials, Chuck Lesson of Viad um, and Evan Feynman from the Tobacco Commission, the executive director, had gotten together and decided that Charles Lesson didn't need to pay back any of the outstanding money he had received in grants because, and this is the kicker, 
VIAB as an organization had such a huge footprint of economic development projects going on in the mm. state that he had more than satisfied any obligations to the Tobacco Commission for repayment. Now the funny thing about this, and this is almost $640 million and 727 jobs that Charles Lesson claimed he was involved in with the Tobacco Commission. The funny thing is he doesn't have any personal stake in any of these other alleged projects. And so the quid pro quo was, hey, I'll keep working as a government official on this board to do economic development, but you gotta let me off the hook for the remaining grants I should be paying back. Uh, this is, quite simply put, corruption. Um, the thing that's also interesting about this is that Evan Feynman at the Tobacco Commission has a boss. It's the executive committee of the Tobacco Commission, and they meet every couple of months specifically to talk about problems like this. They had specifically told Charles Lesson, Charles Lesson's lawyer, and Evan Feynman that they weren't going to let them off the hook. But they were let off the hook, and it never went back to the executive committee. So this is um, a chapter uh, in the history of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. And I should have blown this up, but I would just want to note that one of their first logos, which was in circulation for a very long time, as far as I know, is the only state agency logo that has a state flag and a foreign country's flag on the logo. Um, this says a lot about VIAB. They're not using it anymore. But the important thing is, what is VIAB? VIAB's been around in various forms since 1996. Uh, an early version emerged under the watchful eyes of a House of Delegates member called Eric Cantor, who went on to become House Republican Majority Leader, and he was very interested in forming a state agency in the governor's office, which would uh, advise the governor on ways to improve cultural, economic, and other links between the Commonwealth and the State of Israel, focusing on commerce, trade, education, and general government. Uh, since 2018, it's no longer in the governor's office. Now the state agency is in the General Assembly. Now why should it be the goal of a state agency to advance this relationship? Never explained, not to the public, not in the legislation, um, but I think I know why it was formed, and even how. VIAB, and what VIAB really does, if you dig into its projects, if you dig into what it does, VIAB is an Israeli Export Promotion Council. It fits the model perfectly. They're connecting Israeli companies to Virginia state funding pools, as if they were American companies or Virginia companies. They're engaging consultants to perform market entry strategy for these Israeli companies and launching new operations that compete directly against Virginia and US competitors. Plus they tap other federal, or excuse me, other state agencies for support. The driving assumption is that Israeli companies inherently have a lot to offer. And this is also the thesis of a book from a while back called Startup Nation, which is basically arguing the case that because of its unique position in the Middle East, Israel inherently has uh, innovation that other countries can adopt. 
Um, what we're going to see in a few cases is that it's not necessarily the case. Um, what Viad does is it consolidates the most active state Israel lobbying groups into a powerful agency inside the government. And these are the Jewish federations in the various large population centers that work most intensively to advance Israel within the state. And so in the legislation, Chapter 697 of Virginia State Law, each one of these federations can put a board member into the Virginia Israel Advisory Board uh, Board of Directors. So it connects Israel lobbying initiatives that normally take place outside of the state government to people inside the state government. And so when the federations uh, backing VIAB are working on changes to put a more pro-Israel spin on state K-12 textbooks, they can have involvement with VIAB members. When they want to launch anti-First Amendment state resolutions and laws, they can work with VIAB to try and get those passed in the state legislature. When they're cross-promoting fellow VIAB board members for political office, they can contribute and then work with that office, uh, office holder. And the, their latest coup, as far as I'm concerned, is the ascension of Eileen Fillercore and to become the first uh, member of the General Assembly, uh, an intensely powerful representative from Fairfax, received donations from all the VIAB board members, and now she's in a key position in the state legislature to enact the VIAB agenda. And again, she used to be on the VIAB board. Um, and they draft other agencies to become appendages of Israeli business interests, and the key case study in this is the Memorandum of Understanding that was drafted between Virginia Tech, which has a lot going on for it in terms of its research portfolio, and Sabra Dipping Company. So the Jewish federations that essentially created and are at the periphery and involved heavily with FIAB are raising about 34 million dollars a year. They have about 133 employees, 3,000 volunteers. They're organizations that are extremely well connected, high energy, highly talented people, um, and are able to monitor and interact with VIAB to advance their objectives. Nathan Shore, who was a former president of the Jewish Federation of Richmond, talked about a memorandum of understanding that was inked between Virginia Tech and Blue and White Foods, which is the parent company of Sabra Diffin Company. And he talked about how important it was to work with VIAB inside government to attach five major campaign donors to a gubernatorial trip to Israel in order to get this MOU signed between Virginia Tech and Blue and White Foods. So getting those five donors to Israel, game changer, total game changer. The former executive director worked for months to set up meetings with McAuliffe, but it really took these donors to make things happen. So this is, I would say, one of the major problems. This kind of thing happens with chambers of commerce all across the country. Chambers of commerce want to get their people involved in various types of uh, trips like that. 
But this is a whole different level. And this was Nathan Shore addressing what else? Uh, a uh, Federation audience when he made these remarks last year. So the Strauss Group Virginia Tech MOU, it obligates, and this is something again, the governor signed with these five donors in tow, obligates Virginia Tech basically to work on the commercialization of Sabra Dipping Company and other Strauss Group foods in the U.S. market. You know, Virginia Tech isn't a marketing division. It's got its own high-tech portfolio of research projects that could turn into the next Google, could turn into the next big thing. But this <coughs> MOU basically says, actually, you know, whereas we're this giant food and beverage company and Virginia Tech is a uh, you know, has got market access. Here, you could you could do our marketing for us and make us profitable in the U.S. I would say it's kind of demeaning. Uh, we got it released under FOIA. wasn't easy, but it's written up in the book. Uh, it's not a good deal for Virginia Tech, and uh, I would say it takes them away from their core competencies. So, Virginia, the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. Uh, is powerful. They do the one thing that every politician needs and that's donate to their political campaigns. So real estate mogul Marcus Weinstein, almost $300,000 in campaign contribution over the past years. Uh, Chuck Lesson has given his share for over $40,000. As you go through the list of VIAB board members who are either designated or appointed by various entities, such as the governor's office. A lot of them have in common their extremely high level of campaign contributions. And so this is where a lot of the power and influence comes from, except that now their key people, uh, such as Dove Hawk, the executive director, are inside the government, not outside. And there's a real palpable recognition, almost a feeling of, I can't believe we're getting away with this on the part of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. Um, and that is Dove Hawk in the same meeting where um, the former Federation president spoke, uh, said the following, there's no state that has an agency that's funded by the state. And then he goes on to compare it to outside chambers of commerce. There's probably 20 states that have some kind of Israel, America, Texas, Israel Chamber of Commerce, Southwest or Southeast Region Association called Connects in Maryland. They have a four-man team with at least 10 times our budget to do this also. But it's nothing that's funded by the state. It's got a little bit of gravitas, but it doesn't have the gravitas if the state doesn't do anything about it. And then he goes on to brag about getting a government official to go miles to uh, a little convention that he's put together, putting together. Can you imagine? I said to the Secretary of Commerce, now he's only been in the job six months, I said to him, do me a favor, drive two hours, sit with us for two hours, and then drive two hours back. And he said, yes. Now he understood. Now he cared. Chambers of Commerce have a harder time doing that. A state agency, not so hard. So, I think we've gone through this. Um, how does VIAB operate? VIAB operates in an extremely secretive fashion for a state government agency. 
First of all, they codename all of their product projects to protect the identity of the Israeli counterpart. And so when you go through their scant and scarce board minutes and other publications, you see references to Project Turbine, Ballistic, Ecowave Power, Project Jonah. So all of these are covers, they're code names, so that they can avoid talking about which Israeli company is coming into the Virginia market. And they do that for a very good reason. And in one board meeting, they said, from now on, we're gonna talk about Project Jonah because we don't wanna jeopardize state funding for this major fish farming project. And, you know, how could talking about it openly jeopardize anything? Well, it's because some of these companies are quite sketchy, have little track record. They probably wouldn't make it unless they were on the back of giant subsidies. And then still more worrisome, some are involved explicitly in illegal activities overseas. So they wouldn't pass any sort of vetting uh, test if people really knew what was going on. Uh, Viam denies every FOIA request filed under the state sunshine law. This is probably what really got me going on Viab were two denials by the uh, chairman of the board uh, who just basically said, no, we're not going to tell you how we determine all of our eco economic claims of jobs and tax-based development. We don't have to, we're not going to. So they're kind of like a tomb over there. But fortunately, other state agencies aren't quite so worried about talking about Viab. And I got the feeling that there's actual contention. That's because the Virginia Economic Development Partnership Agency, which is in charge of doing uh, economic development, hundreds of people over there, they recently brought in this tiny company called Amazon to set up shop in Virginia. They know what they're doing. They take pains not to displace Virginia companies when they do economic development. But anyway, it, there's no visible coordination on a lot of this between VIAB and VEDP. VIAB relentlessly mines state development funding, it holds conferences in Israel, seeks federal subsidies, and again, it issues endless claims of jobs and tax revenue generation, which even the governor's office started doubting um, at the end of the McAuliffe administration. So here's another Viab project, Orin Safety Glass. You know, Terry McAuliffe is in all these pictures, I don't know why, but there's the giant check, try to cash that at the bank. Orin Safety Glass formed in a kibbutz in central Israel in 1979 to manufacture transparent armor for tanks and other vehicles. We would call it bulletproof glass, but transparent armor is probably more exacting. Um, VIAB brought Orin safety glass to Greensville County near Emporia, Virginia, and managed to deliver huge subsidies in three different phases to Orin safety glass on the promise of a number of jobs that would be created improvement of the tax base. But something bad happened. So phase one, bring in Orin, $1.5 million in tobacco funds, governor opportunity funds, training from the county, 
loans to get uh, connectivity to the plant. Greensville went all out to bring Orange Safety Glass into one of their industrial parks, into a building the county owned and kept on its books for $1.5 million. And this, by the way, is the first public compilation of all of these different pieces. Uh, nobody had this in one place before the book. Uh, phase two, 2009, expansion. Upgrade the plant, get more tobacco funds, get more investment uh, tax credits and other funds, uh, go into debt to connect the building to more electricity and water. Um, so the government parties showered another almost half a million dollars on orange safety glass. And then a third round, and this is the interesting thing, you keep going back to the Tobacco Commission, back to all of these state funds, funding pools for your expansions. Um, there, it's very hard to tell too when you go through the Tobacco Commission website, and this is an agency that's been socked with various corruption investigations. Uh, there was one where a Tobacco Commission official set up a nonprofit, sent millions of dollars to it. His wife ran it, and then he retired, went in to head it up. I mean, that's the kind of stuff the Tobacco Commission has been involved in. And so now they're supposed to be cleaned up, publishing all their grants on the web so you can see what's going on. It's still almost impossible to see, at least in the case of Viab, that it's an Israeli company that's getting the money. They work very hard to hide that. Anyway. 2.5 million in total. So what's the bad thing that happened? Oh, and another thing. Greensville finally gave the building for a half million dollars. This building was had on its books at 1.1 million dollars as part of the deal because it really wanted these orange safety glass uh, jobs. Well, orange safety glass ran into a problem. It won a series of contracts in 2014 and 2015 to deliver MRAP, this giant military vehicle with transparent armor on it. It won the contracts after lowballing US Army contracts and started manufacturing transparent glass for the Army. Well, when you work for the Army, they have their own recipe for transparent armor and they want you to make it according to their recipe. And it's a good recipe because it keeps, you know, the people in the vehicle safe. Um, and they have all of the protocols and means for testing the glass so you know it's any good. Well, Orin didn't have the material, it didn't really, wasn't really in the business of manufacturing other people's recipes, so it did its own recipe, delivered a bunch of shipments to the army, they put them on the vehicles, they shipped them overseas, only to find out that the product Orange Safety Glass was shipping was out of spec. It didn't meet their requirements. It didn't meet their protocols for testing. And so what happened? Orin had to repay almost $5 million for delivering out of spec products. Um, it basically lost its government contracts with the Army, putting Greensville County in jeopardy, Greensville County, which had gone to such lengths to bring it in. So they went into steep decline, and there's no telling really how this will affect Greensville County's financial viability. It's a pretty big county. It's got a pretty big balance sheet, but this is not going to help. The fact that Orrin lost its contracts after it 
delivered out of spec product to the Army. The other thing that I found in the FOIA research though was that Greensville County was never really able to see how many jobs were being created in the plant. Oren would say, yeah, we've got all these full-time employees. And then the reviews of the company online would say, this place sucks, it's all temps. I can't make any friends because they're always leaving. So there's this real uh, discrepancy between what's being said about the plant and what they're supposed to contractually deliver. But what is absolutely true is that although it tried several times to get an accounting, it never really was able, the county was never really able to understand whether there was compliance or not. They did try to claw back funds at one point, unsuccessfully. Maybe there was no money left to claw back from or in safety glass. Um, Energix and Project Turbine. The name of this particular secret VIAV project is interesting. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But anyway, this is a case of more VIAV self-dealing. So this is a solar energy company uh, that wants to develop utility-scale solar arrays in the United States. And it's an example of more self-dealing. Virginia's Real Advisory Board Southwest Regional Coordinator, Aviva Fry, also represents Energix in Virginia. So she's serving two masters on the board that wants to develop the projects, also representing the company in Virginia. And she used her status to meet with the governor's office and regulators and try to develop uh, Energix projects. And it's a shame this is a little wiped out, but this is a request by email released under FOIA to the governor's office for a meeting, always made as a Virginia Israel Advisory Board coordinator, but asking to do business for Energix, get them a project, get them over some regulatory hurdles. So it's kind of the, you know, biodiesel story over again. Wyatt has gotten good at this, inserting its own board members into a position of profiting off the same development opportunities, except now they're insider government officials, not just guys out in some um, chamber of commerce. So Energix has big plans, half a billion dollars in solar projects across the country, uh, across the state. These names probably don't mean much. Axton, Gladys, Jarrett, Wyethville, they're rural areas. But the interesting thing about Virginia is, it's the cities and counties that really regulate giant solar energy projects. They have to sign off on conditional permits. They have to look at your plan for decommissioning the site. They have to give you construction permits. So if you want to do these in Virginia, you got to go through local jurisdictions. And so of all of these projects, the city of Chesapeake is the most advanced. Energix is operating through multiple opaque limited liability companies. One of them's in Florida, another's in Alexandria. Some of them send checks for this, others do that. Uh, but it's Energix that's behind all of them, and you can trace that back in their actual uh, filings. They were granted a conditional use permit in February of 2018, and they've made huge pro uh, promises about the security of the site, not creating glare to landowners, not degrading the rural sort of ambiance, 
remain, uh, not using pesticides to wipe out vegetation. And the question that came up last week is, can you actually really trust Energix to do all of this? Is it the sort of company that is gonna be a good neighbor? And the answer is no. The UNHCR designated Energix on its list of business enterprises that are doing business physically on land in occupied Palestinian territories. Category G company that's benefiting commercially from the use of rural resources located in occupied Palestinian territories. And there are a number of reports about this. These are some blurry photos of the entrance into the Energix solar array in the West Bank and all of their construction plans. But wait, it gets worse. They're also in the Golan Heights. In 2015, they built and now own 155 megawatts of wind turbine facilities in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. There are reports of them using coercive methods to obtain the land from its Syrian indigenous owners in violation of international law. None of this was disclosed in any Virginia filing. There was nothing in any of those filings saying, oh, and by the way, we're owned by this parent that's kind of doing this stuff overseas. And so the one thing that I noticed was VIAB named the Energic Project Project Turbine. And they specifically said Project Turbine is a multi-billion dollar Israeli real estate and renewable energy concern with significant properties in DC and Northern Virginia. It's developing several solar sites to produce electricity, blah, blah, blah. I think there's a certain amount of pride, not in the solar arrays in the West Bank, but the turbines in Golan. This seemed to Viab to be just a really exciting thing, enough to use it as the code name for this project. But the questions it raises for the city of Chesapeake are many. Does this create a moral hazard? The entire process of review by the city of Chesapeake of this project and the Department of Environmental Quality never looked at the moral hazard question. And any business school student will tell you the moral hazard question is extremely important. If you're an insurance company and someone comes in dying of cancer with three weeks to live, do you want to sell them a multi-million dollar insurance policy, life insurance? No, you do not. There's a moral hazard. They have the sort of characteristics that you don't want to insure. But that also applies to companies. Is this the sort of company that's going to go through 35 years of abiding to all of its commitments, contracts, and legal, legal obligations uh, to build this massive solar array in Chesapeake? When there are already residents and landowners who don't want a solar energy array in their midst. They've never been told about the true nature of the ultimate beneficial foreign owners. And there are plenty of upstanding, non-problematic, transparent Virginia companies that are competing fiercely for this kind of project that aren't subsidized by the Tobacco Commission, that don't have a shadowy group inside the government that is backing them. So this whole issue uh, now that it's coming out, and some of this has been developed after the book, uh, is going to raise some questions, I believe, in Virginia. And finally, 
Project Jonah. Project Jonah, which is really Aquamouth, an Israeli um, recirculating aquaculture company. And here's what happened with Project Jonah. Project Jonah is one of Viad's earliest, most important projects. You see references to it by code name in 2013, 2014. Um, it was incredibly difficult <coughs> to figure out where this fish farm was located. But it turns out, after I drove down there and looked and looked and looked, it's next to the Richlands Municipal Wastewater Treatment Plant, next to the Clinch River uh, in Tazewell County. So there's nothing there. Stacks of hay. They're making hay, but they're not making any fish. They're certainly not growing salmon or tilapia. It's a giant empty field. So where did all the money go? And what? how much money did they get? Uh, $10 million in Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Authority loan guarantees, a $1.5 million tobacco commission development grant in 2015, a million dollars in tax abatements, all sorts of goodies. Um, a lot of it started flowing to Viab's consultant, Lala Corral, a Harvard Business School graduate who set up this project. Um, the distribution, which supermarkets are going to buy their product, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but none of this is actually going on. And again, the reference to the secrecy of this project was, it was explicit. In a Viab board meeting, Quote, they said, all board members are asked to refer to the project by this code name. Leaked information could jeopardize funding opportunities from the state. So very hush-hush, very secretive, very difficult to find. And the question is, why fish farming? <laughs> Particularly from a company with a fairly sketchy track record. Well, it's because there's already a world-class fish farm using recirculating aquaculture at the very same latitude 100 miles to the east called Blue Ridge Aquaculture. So when Viad set this project up, they knew they had a proven concept because it had been under development since 1988. This company is producing 4 million pounds of tilapia, shipping 10 to 20,000 pounds of live fish every day. It's been using recirculating aquaculture technology since before Aquamouth came into existence. And it's an extremely environmentally and socially conscious company that's employee-owned, no state subsidies. Um, kind of a jewel of Virginia. But they stand to lose their market if this other project ever, ever comes to fruition. So Aquamouth, in my view, is coming in for the reason that there's an existing market, they can seize Blue Ridge Aquaculture's proven market. The same has already happened. The overall concept of seizing market share from a proven uh, market happened with Sabra Dipping Company. Maya brought that into Virginia on the back of massive state subsidies uh, to build a massive plant to, to make hummus. And it basically seized share from the other market leaders, Cedars Mediterranean Foods and, and New England, and really got a lot for its government subsidies in terms of seizing market shares. 
So, what the Viad projects do behind the scenes is they really build a lot more economic might and political influence in the state for Viad members, who again are incredibly involved with ownership stakes, doing contract work, engineering service, high end stuff, high value added stuff uh, for these projects. And Americans, including most Virginians, have no idea this sort of thing is happening. Um, Virginia already has a half billion dollar bilateral as a state trade deficit with Israel. And that's because of the horrendous 1985 U.S.-Israel Free Trade Agreement, which was signed between the U.S. and Israel, which basically locks U.S. products out of the Israeli markets while throwing open the doors in the U.S. Well, that's already, they're already under that as far as an exporting state. But the cumulative effect of bringing in all of these Israeli manufacturers with all of their inputs, enzymes, what, what have you, coming into the state will be to drive up the cumulative trade deficit to over $7 billion by 2025 if the same trend continues, if all the subsidization continues, if all these sweetheart deals continue to be inked. And so Viab's stealth export promotion activities for Israel, not the U.S., will have a material impact. <coughs> so how does Viab get away with all of this? What are they saying to the state? Well, they're basically making huge and unsubstantiated claims about how its projects will create jobs and generate tax revenues. So that long list from Charles Lesson that he used to save himself from repaying loans that's the kind of claim that Viab is constantly generating. In 2017, they said that that year they helped create 127 jobs and 426,000 in tax revenue. But Todd Patterson Haymore, who was Virginia's Secretary of Commerce, looked at the report and he said he found it to be inflated without merit. So this is uh, not flying with people who are taking a closer look than is generally available to the public. Viab's chairman, Mel Chaskin, again, he won't release anything to me about why they can possibly claim they're creating all of these jobs. Um, the other state agencies that should have an idea because they manage payroll and payroll taxes, they don't know. They don't help Viab with the figures. Virginia Economic Development Partnership, they don't know. Nobody knows. And Viad's not telling. And again, the idea of churn, which is, hey, if we bring in company X, are we going to put any Virginia companies out of business? And is it really a good idea? That's the kind of economic development calculation they might do at VEDP. That's not a thing at Viad. They don't care. They want to get the Israeli company in. So is everybody depressed? <laughs> Is there any good news? Yes, there is. Actually, there is some good news. I think one of the best things that's happened recently is that Viab is surrounded. I mean, they're not coming out with their hands up, but they're definitely surrounded online anyway. If you look online and look at the activities of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board, 
there's about a 10 to 1 ratio of via press releases ma masquerading as news reports and hard-hitting investigative journalism about Viab and the fact that there are a lot of questions about it. Um, one of the best was by Jim Metz of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, presentation at the National Press Club, our conference, uh, talking about Viab and its many issues. But Washington Report, other parties beginning to look at Viab and what it's actually doing in the state. The Virginia Coalition for Human Rights did a state poll asking Virginia taxpayers, more than 2,000 of them, what do they think, given the trade deficit with Israel, should they be subsidizing Israeli business projects in the Commonwealth? The plurality, 38%, said, actually, I agree that we shouldn't be doing that. This went out as a counterpoint, and it's a statistically significant poll. And something even more interesting that happened, and is happening right now. The Virginia Korea Advisory Board is a piece of legislation that's in the State House right now. But to people who are following this, the idea of another bilateral country to state advisory board focused on creating a comparative advantage isn't flying. Uh, those of us who are watching Viab think it looks more like a means to legitimize Viab's model than anything that's coming out of the grassroots. And it turns out we were proven right yesterday when the Virginia Asian American community, uh, which is a genuine representative coalition of groups, came out against it, lobbying their state representatives saying, hey, we don't want a Korea Virginia advisory board. Vote no on SB 206. They saw it as duplicative. VEDP's doing this kind of thing. Inequitable, bad precedent, preferential, and divisive. They don't want it. It didn't come from them. Uh, and VCHR, from what I've heard, doesn't like it either. So the prospects look quite bleak for this legislation that they're trying to foist on Virginia before the current session comes to an end. So there is growing awareness about VIAB and the issues it's creating in Virginia. It's not coming from mainstream media sources. The Richmond Times-Dispatch has been AWOL on this issue forever. They're not going to write a story ever about the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. But that's fine. Uh, there are plenty of others who are willing to do the work. Uh, but the growing issue, I would say, is not just about Virginia. Virtually every major population center has a group of Jewish federations intensely interested in turning their state into uh, a better friend of Israel, doing more Israeli development projects in the state, leveraging their political muscle to do exactly what Virginia is doing. It's an extremely replicable model.
And so just like you see uh, anti-First Amendment legislation suddenly proliferate across state legislatures saying you can't boycott Israel for its human rights records, it'd be very easy to see a proliferation of viab-like entities in California, New York, Maryland. So what happens to VIAB matters a lot. Should it go back? Should it retreat into the federations and into more of a traditional Chamber of Commerce-like model and not have all of this influence inside government? Or is this model going to proliferate? Is this the new way that state government works on all things related to Middle East foreign policy? Uh, that question is currently an open question. And so with that, I have consumed exactly one hour of your precious time. And uh, if anyone has some questions, friendly, hostile, otherwise, um, love to hear them. Uh, in the back. I, the deficit that was created for Virginia, I did not see a source. Was that verified by the state? Or do you know where that deficit was verified? And if so, for example, has that been offset in other industries, maybe in other states, such as arms sales or anything that we might do that, that may not be in Virginia, but that might be elsewhere? Yeah. If you buy a copy of the book, it's got like <laughs> 300 footnotes in it. Yeah, I'm exaggerating. 190 footnotes. That particular statistic uh, is from the International Trade Database of the Census Bureau. And so you can go in. It's not really easy to get to anymore. It used to be on Trade Stats Express on the web. You could do, how much is my state exporting to this country? Very easy to get. They've discontinued it, so now you've got to go into a back-end sort of thing uh, through another trade database. But you can find those statistics. It's bilateral merchandise goods trade between the state and any foreign country you want. And imports, imports and exports. So it is available to the public online oh, yeah. and sure. the database. And that's what I was wondering, because I see you driving to various locations. For, I don't have a problem with any of that. I uh -huh. would probably do something similar in uh -huh. this case. Is the project there? But it's just not in a database where the public can see that and that you know could could fall under some of the visibility issues. Well, yeah, the point um, the point of doing the book and the point of putting all these documents online uh, is that in most cases you can actually click on a given uh, link, uh, at least in the online version of the book, and go to uh, Go to the source. Sorry uh, about this email thing. But there's nothing in this book, there's no claim in this book that's not sourced. Um, so Trade Stats Express, I think you can get trade balances by state through 2018. The book references each source for all of these. And then a lot of the documents, like if you're worrying or questioning my claims about energies, you know, we're putting up archives of every single document released by the local authority along with other documents to make the case. So the whole point of this archive is really, you know, have more questions, 
<laughs> read the PDFs and go directly to the source. So most of the footnotes in the book are uh, references directly to the source information. In a lot of cases, the big claims, there's multiple sources. And again, if you want to see something like the sweetheart deal between Charles Lesson and Evan Feynman, the FOIA releases are there. And it's uh, something you can verify. You can call the Tobacco Commission. Hey, Evan, did you really do this? Did Charles really talk you into that? It's all there. So, um, yeah, don't, uh, don't take my word for it, though. Go to Trade Stats Express on the web. Go to the Census Bureau of the National Trade Division. It's all there. Uh, okay, so we started off with the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. Um, that was a total bust. But we also submitted uh, FOIA requests to the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Uh, we submitted requests to the City of Chesapeake, the Tobacco Commission, the Virginia Coalfield Economic Development Agency, uh, various county level economic development agencies, so Russell County, Tazewell County, Greenfield, uh, City of Chesapeake, uh, the office of the governor got us started because after McAuliffe, uh, well, when that um, administration was leaving, they did a huge document dump that allowed the first article called uh, the taxpayer-funded Israel lobby inside state government. And it was all Virginia governor documents with all of these different documents about the insider dealings, the complaints about inflated figures, uh, Aviva Fry trying to leverage her position to get contracts. All this stuff came out. I don't think it made a lot of people at Viad happy. But at the end of, and I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask, at the end of the administration, the McAuliffe administration had had enough of VIAB. And VIAB was telling the governor that they didn't have authority to name their new executive director who was being flown in from Israel. They had a real problem in the governor's office with their choice. And so this was the point where VIAB proved that it wasn't an advisory board because it fought the governor's office where it was supposedly advising and got a lobbyist working on its projects to help them lobby to move themselves out of the governor's office and into the legislature where they thought they had more influence. The legislature rubber stamped their new executive director and their new budget and the governor's office released the story of this contention to us we published it. So it's uh, all online. Every source document is online. And they've been repeated on other websites. This 10,000-member uh, coalition in Virginia, the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, has a lot of these documents online. They're not going anywhere. Um, now, Virginia is in the process of amending its FOIA laws, so it might become more difficult to get information about specific projects. One of the most interesting projects was the Hamilton Holmes uh, Public School, which was 
doing business in solar panels and what a bad deal that was. And since that time, it may not be possible to get actual corporate documents on what sort of projects you're doing. But anyway, I'm not answering your question anymore. Um, all of this stuff is online. We filed over 60 FOIAs in the course of this. The nice thing about Virginia is that some of their uh, FOIA officials uh, have been, it's been drilled into them that they have to be responsive to FOIAs. And they really are. They have five days to respond. And if anyone in here has ever done a federal FOIA, the limit is, you know, 20 days. And the norm is a couple years. And we pretty much, on our federal FOIAs, file a lawsuit for virtually every major FOIA now because it's impossible to get the CIA, the State Department, Department of Energy to release it. They don't want to do it. So, Have you been able to get any um, agencies, other agencies, or sort of find useful information from some of the other agencies? Yeah, that's, that's where all, it was all triangulation. It was all, well, what do you know about FIA? And they would tell us. And again, I got the feeling, particularly with some of these large projects, which are just obviously not going anywhere. I mean, I think they wanted to build a fish farm, but it's just not going anywhere. And I think they're getting tired of the continual requests to extend the projects. And someday someone's gonna have to pay the, the loan, or the, uh, the grants back to the Tobacco Commission. And they just keep delaying and delaying and saying they're gonna do the project. But anyway, I get the sense that a lot of state agencies with non-political appointees manning the helm kind of don't like this and are kind of willing to release information they think will have an impact. Um, so it's extremely productive. Uh, it's been extremely productive to do state sunshine laws. It's totally different in some respects than, uh, than federal FOIA, but in other respects, it's just, it's amazing to get things so quickly. Would be for example, Sabra would have been a Pepsi purchase, I believe. This would have been a publicly traded company buying a private, privately held company, small company, correct? I think no, no, it's not. Am I, no, I mean, you're right about the connection. Yeah, so in a FOIA situation, I don't know oh, what, I see what, you're saying. what that can really do for you. There's not going to be a lot of transparency for that purchase. I mean, there's a lot of due diligence probably to be done for that. Yeah, I, I got you. Yeah, so when when uh, this was almost a reverse acquisition where you know the hummus business managers in Israel kind of rode Pepsi back into the US but you're right none of that stuff is public um, and it's in the book it's complicated but the county that wanted the plants they're obligated to respond to FOIA and they're the ones giving away all the money and so things about the plant things about the number of jobs, things about you know, what their plans were to build this massive facility. That one I didn't get past the guard gate. But their, uh, their road is on the cover of the book. That's uh, the entry to Sabra Hummus. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of state subsidies, a lot of county, a lot of governor's office subsidies to get this thing up and running, giving it a really nice comparative advantage that other companies didn't have. Uh, but you're right, private companies don't respond to FOIA and they don't like it when counties and 
other agencies give away their proprietary information. And so I think they might be behind a series of amendments to the state FOIA law trying to shut that down. Uh, they really don't want their proposals being released to the public. They really don't want to have to explain uh, some of their bad deals, some of their delays. There's a lot of really, <coughs> I would say, embarrassing stuff that came out. And, you know, nobody likes to see a project go down in flames. But um, some of the extreme delays in uh, the fish farm, for example, it's all online, but, you know, they, they were going to build this thing in 2015, and they've just not been able to get it going for all sorts of reasons. There's no way they're ever going to pay the money back. They took all of the county officials on a junket to Poland and Israel to kind of get them excited about bringing this business in. Um, that money's gone. So, you know, every once in a while there'll be a report in the media saying, oh yeah, real soon now. It's going to happen. And to be honest, Richlands could really use the, the jobs. But when I wandered around the businesses in the immediate vicinity of this green field down by the wastewater treatment plant, nobody knew anything about this. They're not talking about it anymore. The county officials would rather not talk about it because they know because of the nature of economic development, they have to kind of co-sign all of these promises to get the grants before they go out to the companies. And they're on the hook for this too. They're gonna have to pay this money back. So, you know, it goes through these different periods. Right now, they have to get this thing going by December of this year, or I don't think anybody's gonna put up with any more delays. So I think the sort of disappointment that they've been misled is palpable. I mean, not every economic development project goes through. I mean, there are reasons that companies can't always deliver on their promises. But Viad's companies, you know, they have, many of them have a sordid track record, whether it's Orin Safety Glass, Project Jonah, Energix, and they really don't want to talk about it. And I think that has really led to a lot more releases. That's the kind of thing you never see in federal FOIAs. Government employees and federal agencies, they don't want to release anything anymore. But I think a lot of these counties and cities and agencies are kind of sick of this. Uh, two weeks ago, um, the United Nations uh, put out a uh, boycott list and uh, number 32 on the list was Energix Renewable Energy. Yes, and so that particular report, which is kind of buried back in the UN site, is on israellobby.org slash energix, helpfully for you. It's right here. Boom. And so, yes, they are on that list. Um, a lot have immediately come to the defense of all these companies and said, oh, you know, we really shouldn't be calling them out like this. My God, Airbnb is on that list. My goodness, you know, my favorite travel booking Expedia.com is on that list. How could you do this to them? Well, the bottom line is they're doing business in these areas. And Energix is 
pretty blase about the whole thing. If you look at their filings on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange in Hebrew, they call these, oh, these are just unregulated territories. They're not really a problem. Unregulated territories. But yeah, that list is there. But what's your question? <laughs> How can that affect the, um, you know, the public opinion over here, too? Do you think that'll help I, to... I, I think it does. I think the landowners who don't like a project like Energix might become more human rights oriented because, I mean, shamefully, they probably just want any excuse to oppose the project. Um, but other people who don't know about this and learn about it and care about human rights are going to raise this in city council meetings in Chesapeake. And they're going to talk about it on Facebook. And these questions cannot be answered. I mean, there's no question, unless they divest either of these uh, these projects in Golan and the West Bank, or of divest in Chesapeake and let some other player come in, they're going to have a real problem getting the construction permits, I think. I think people who care about human rights in the state are going to do something about this. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Okay, I have a two-part question. Um, first, has there been, like, as an, have you come across anything overtly linking Amazon um, and their plans to some of this? And the second part is, uh, what is next for you? Oh, what's next? Um, <laughs> so, Amazon pops up all over the place as maybe being a company that because of its data centers in Virginia and its commitments may want to buy large uh, solar arrays, utility scale generators and solar power. Um, I don't think Amazon is on the uh, list, if, if that's your question, but Amazon pops up all over Virginia as that's the way you do economic development. We bring them in, they add to all these jobs, blah, blah, blah. The VEDP has this giant multicolor brochure boasting about the Amazon win. Uh, how it relates to VIAB, VIAB's Dove Hawk, uh, who's the executive director, he kind of brags about Amazon, but I don't think he had anything to do with it because he's focused on this other portfolio. So that's, that's all I've heard about Amazon. As far as what's next, um, well, the research agenda of my organization, we have a lot of stuff in the hopper, tons of stuff, like really groundbreaking stuff. It's not going to be like, well, this story we released linking Netanyahu to a nuclear technology smuggling ring, that was pretty big. That was one of my favorite document releases. Netanyahu, he lied trading. And what was the name of the company? Well, nuclear triggers. When we got Homeland Security and FBI documents about Benjamin Netanyahu's direct involvement smuggling nuclear triggers through a US network to Israel, that's the kind of thing that I think we, we add value in. 
Those documents are all over the place now. We got stuff like that in the hopper. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, it's new stuff. New stuff. So, um, and we've also got our big conference coming up in May, of course. That's another big thing. But on the research side, I can't really foreshadow any of it because, you know, whether it's a court case nobody knows about or a FOIA initiative, um, we like to get everything ready and kind of release it all in big pieces so that it can be taken up. And I have to say the media environment has really improved. I was not going to talk about this, and I know I shouldn't talk about this. But one of our other proudest moments was releasing in 2008 the archive of the Department of Justice releasing the Kennedy administration's uh, Justice Department efforts to register the Israel lobby as foreign agents focused on the American Zionist Council and APAC. And there's just never too many opportunities to educate people about that. It's one of my favorite topics so a couple days ago on Twitter, there was this giant imbroglio going on about progressive Democrats telling their representatives not to go to the American Israel Public Affairs Committee policy conference, which is happening just days from now. This is causing all sorts of consternation. Uh, when Bernie Sanders said, I'm not going to go to AIPAC because they have serious human rights problems over there. It caused a lot of problems. So Kathleen Kennedy Townsend stepped into the fray and said, well, I hope all of our party leaders talk to people they disagree with. Well, meaning Bernie should go talk to APAC. That is what I learned from my father, Robert Kennedy, and my uncles, John and Ted Kennedy. Bernie Sanders should engage with APAC. I'm proud to speak at the APAC conference this week. And of course, the Washington Post Jennifer Rubin stepped right in, saying, well said, the conservative columnist. Bernie, making more friction, losing more potential allies every day. Golden opportunity. Tweet from IRMEP to Ms. Kennedy, who is also Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, by the way, now at Georgetown. Your father's Justice Department owned <coughs> APAC to register as an Israeli foreign agent under FARA on November 21 of 1962. That was when APAC operated as a lobbying division of the American Zionist Council. RFK tried to engage. APAC didn't comply and the U.S. suffers. Of course, attached to the document archive and the FARA order. So there's just Never too many chances to engage. But frankly, I think that the daughter of the only attorney general to dare to do something like this, after seeing the record of funding coming in from Israel to set up APAC, seeing all of the lobbying going on, all the public relations, deciding this needed to be in the open, openly disclosed to Americans so they could see what was going on. The fact that she doesn't know this or pretends not to know it is unacceptable and it really nobody has to suffer in silence these days you can get tens of thousands of other people to understand that this is not acceptable and frankly I'm surprised at the number of people who bring up the registration issue 
if this entity was told to register way back in 62 and still hasn't, this represents a major failure of our Justice Department. And in my mind, the biggest foreign meddling, ongoing foreign meddling in this country that dwarfs Russia and all other foreign states. So uh, this stuff has an impact. And if you go through different forms of social media, you will see other people raising the registration issue constantly. RFK's battle to register APAC was uh, legendary. And I think if there had been the internet in the 60s uh, and social media as it exists today, the media wouldn't have been able to bury this story. Many top journalists knew what was going on, but they didn't write about this. If you comb through the Senate archives that were released in 2010, they knew. The story was suppressed, though. But it wouldn't be today. Too many people would talk about it, and it would represent a major threat uh, not to actually follow through uh, with an order like that. So I think that's a good place to conclude. Thank you. Thank you.